Hello everyone, another beautiful Monday evening today, wherever that you're tuning in from, it's great to have you. I'm your host, Mila Dushal, and welcome to Hotship, the now of workplace, the now of diversity, leadership and it. Today I have such a fantastic guest with me, and I'm really excited to introduce her. And it is Zainab Mushini. So Zainab Mushini is a first-generation African American and is from Aloha, Oregon. In 2003, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees placed Zainab and her family in Oregon when she was about 14 years old. Zainab and her family moved to the Northern Virginia area nearly 14 years ago. After finishing high school, Zainab attended Northern Virginia Community College while working full-time in multiple jobs. Only that Zainab knows firsthand what it's like to face poverty, live paycheck to paycheck, the effects of discrimination because of your name, class, religion, sex, or skin colour. Therefore, she continues to fight for basic rights. Zainab wants to recenter politics around working people so that our government works for the majority of those struggling to make ends meet, not for corporate interests of the rich and powerful. She's also the former candidate for Virginia District 11. I'm fascinated with her passion and purpose for racial justice. I'm honored to have her own hardship, the now of workplace, diversity, leadership, and S. Welcome, Zaina. Thank you so much, Mila. Thank you for that great introduction. Thank you for having me. I'm, it's an honor to be here. What a great time, like a Monday evening, to make it make it on your show. Thank you for having me. Oh, no, the, the, the honor is mine. It's such a pleasure to have you. And I'm really excited to speak with you today because of the work that you're doing, because of the advocacy you have been doing and you still continue to do. A lot of times, most do not realize how our society communities are interrelated. Our behaviors, ideologies, practices, mindset, and heart set intersects the workplace we are in, our home, and our society. As we live in a more multicultural and culturally intersectional society, it becomes our social responsibility to acknowledge and reform racial justice. And I know this is one of the topics that you're so passionate about and you have consistently advocated for racial equity. And I want to hear your thoughts on how can we catalyze this at grassroots level? Well, um, you're absolutely right. Um, my uh, passion for racial justice and my involvement in politics comes from racial justice. And I think that um, what happens is a lot of times I think we as families or as society members look to our schools and our education system to teach us about about our um, our racial history, right? Like a, a wholesome history of what the United States is about, what the history of colonization globally and the intersectionality of all of it. Um, because we live in a world where it's very US centered, um, despite the fact that white people are a minority globally, uh, we're a very um, white supremacist society globally. Um, and I think that what happens uh, for us in the US is that the education system is very whitewashed when stories are told about um, 
uh, or history is told, the way history is told just in general. I think that we still celebrate Columbus Day. And I think that do not recognize um, the pain and the hurt and the genocide that is behind Columbus of, of Native people, of uh, Black people. And I think that um, we don't have that opportunity to learn these things um, in our school system. So I think then it becomes a responsibility of those of us who have the opportunity um, to get to know um, these true histories um, of racial justice in the US and then get to um, be advocates and get to um, make ways so we can get our message out to broader um, communities. And I think that as a brown person who is also an immigrant, um, so much of my life um, in the US has been um, made easier because of the um, the sacrifices that native people made, the sacrifices that black people made um, for us to be able to um, migrate here, to be able to live um, a life and to be able to be a part of the society. So I think that um, at the grassroots level, I think that I uh, am a, a very big um, uh, advocate of mar marching in the streets. I think that we have the power to vote if we have if we're eligible to vote and if we don't have that um, as um, people who live in this country, we can have our voices heard by, sh by showing up for um, not just racial justice, but other causes that are dear and near to our heart. I love, I love that. See, one of the things, just because of the current climate, what is happening right now, I hear a lot of talks, a lot of talks about allies, right? And and it could be allies as in, you know, from, from a distance, they stand and they, uh, they say, I support you, but there's no action. And and it could be allies as in, you know, I'm your ally, but but they take up all the speaking engagements or they take up all the opportunities and say, oh, I'm, I'm advocating for you. So in terms of racial equity and, and in terms of the current climate, right, there has been a whole tsunami of, of tsunami or a call for change, not just in in our communities itself, but society has a whole that work plays a huge part of our lives. And in order to trigger that change, in order to trigger that action, right? When we talk about action item, we need to take action to make that change. How can we promote racial equity through allyship, where allyship becomes an action. Absolutely. I think that what happens, unfortunately, is that when diversity, inclusion, and um, equity has become buzzwords. So I think that a lot of these organizations or a lot of these institutions who have the power to make a tangible change of being inclusive, inclusive of people who are um, living on the margins, be it racially, um, and gender, um, socioeconomic level, all these um uh, disadvantages that uh, lower income people, people of color, um, women, um, LGBTQIA plus people have, instead of being inclusive of these um, these folks at the decision making tables, um, we um, do um, superficial things like we will hang a flag on our door um, or we will, um, for example, I always think of, uh, of the example of Amazon who um, pays 
majority of the people who work in specifically in the Northern Virginia area, uh, this is true from my experience of um, of knowing Amazon headquarters. Majority of the people who work are lower income um, people of color in these warehouses, and they do not have the opportunity to go take a break because your productivity determines, you know, like you could get right up if you're not doing a number of um, orders per hour and things like that. So they're basically making life so incredibly hard for these people who are the workers who are, you know, basically earning business, basically pr providing the, the services, but then they'll invest like a million dollars into, we're doing something for equity. So I think that it becomes this um, theatrics, um, becomes more of a, um, we as a company, and as a PR team decided to do, do this, when you look at a lot of the board of directors, a lot of the people um, in, in the circles of these people who get to make decisions or could make tangible um, differences of paying people equitably, of uh, including um, uh, marginalized groups in their decision-making tables of board of directors, of CEOs and CFOs and all these people, um, they will uh, do these, uh, philanthropy um, um, events instead of instead of um, allowing for um, for equity equity to take place in the workplace. So I think that it becomes about buzzword, which is which is unfortunate. And I think that from my working experience, often people who are at the decision making tables um, are white, um, mostly white men, um, and then don't. Um, but we'll say we believe in equity and diversity and inclusion, but then not do anything to take um, take actual steps to do so. I love that you mentioned about the pay equity portion of it and people who are sitting on the board of directors and the PR stunts, right? Because they don't really see the, the roots. I always call it the roots because the roots kind of like branches out and kind of like even webs out even farther where the leaves, you can't even see it, right? And recently I tweeted something <laughs> on Twitter and I said, if a CEO, as a CEO, if you have never worked a minimum paying job in your life or do not, or you have not worked as a minimum paying job, even in your own company, mm -hmm. you'll never understand the struggles of it, right? Struggles of a minimum paying job or the person in a minimum paying job. Right, it's so easy for the CEO or board of directors or management to think, okay, I'm going to pay you nine dollars an hour, just based on okay, it's an entry level or minimum job, and and it's not only that, right? It, it's not just the pay, but the job identity that comes along, right? And the person is immediately labeled as, oh, you're dishwasher, you're not worthy. Right. Or your dishwasher, you can't do this. You yeah. don't have an education. But no one really wants to listen to the story of the person, right? Mm -hmm. When rents are going up year after year, when the living costs are going up year after year, that it does not align with pay equity. It does not align with racial equity as well. Because when we look at racial equity, people often think, okay, I'm hiring X number of, of people of color. And that's it. Nice. And when we talk about racial equity, it branches out as to pay equity. What does pay equity look like? Healthcare equity. How does that look like? Right? And immigration. I mean, it just branches off. But 
<laughs> I, I, did, I love that you mentioned about the pay <clears throat> factor of it. And, and, and I know that based from your journey, based from your experience, you have worked in so many different jobs, right? And, uh, and you have lived paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. But only from your experience as an immigrant, I want to hear a story because this is a story that we want to hear that people are, bl- are either blinded or blinded by their privilege, or blinded just by ignorance. Yeah, I want to see the story. Sure, absolutely. I think that I, I think you bring such a good point of about intersectionality of all of it, right? Pay equity translates into like who are these people who are working these ten dollar, eleven dollar jobs? A lot of these people have two, three jobs at the same time, and I've been one of those people. Um, so. Uh, uh, when my family first moved to Northern Virginia, we were right at the cusp of the 2008 market crash. So my family had bought a house and um, all of us worked and I would bring, uh, I had three jobs. I was a waitress, I worked a retail job and I also worked at a, as a re- receptionist at a um, uh, optical office. And I used to have two jobs. Of, uh, I used to work at a fast food place and then a retail place, but then my mom needed glasses and we could not afford to get her glasses. So I had to take on another job because it costs so much money to get to get an eye exam to get glasses. So I think that I've been that person who are taking these jobs. These are lower income people, these are single parents, these are people who are um, who are the most economically marginalized groups in our country. So I think that when corporations are worth billions of dollars and are making these superficial promises about uh, being inclusive and being, um, you know, uh, increasing diversity by hiring a couple of people of color. Um, it doesn't work superficially like that. And and again, I, I, I think that it's possible to have empathy to these to these people. Um, you don't have to be a person of color. You don't have to be a, a disabled person. You don't have to be a lower income person to um, to empathize with, with with people. But I think that the unfortunate reality is that there is a disconnect. Um, our, like you said, housing prices, especially in the Northern Virginia area, are increasing every every year. Um, our pay is not increasing. We have um, a housing shortage in one of the richest, I live in Fairfax County, and it's one of the richest counties in the country, and there are people who are homeless. So I think that it, it you know, just the lack of empathy and the lack of profits over people is just heartbreaking. And um, kind of like my story of, of my family moved here, we were, um, um, sponsored by the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. And then for the first eight months, they you get um, temporary assistance for needy families and you're on food stamps, um, on um, um, uh, Medicaid as, as your health insurance for the, and then eight months after that, you're, you're required to find a job and anybody who is eligible to work has to work to be able to sustain a, a living. And that's what my family did. Um, we were given support and um, I started working when I was 15 years and seven months. I My first job was um, at a Safeway, I was a courtesy clerk. So we're, um, I um, was the person who bags people's groceries and uh, part of my job is to collect carts and things like that. So I did that and then, and I've worked 
ever since then. And I think that we as a society do not make it easy on people. And I think that this notion of uh, saying that, oh, like immigrants are bad and they're going to come steal your jobs from you is just so far from reality. A lot of people come here because they just want the opportunity to be able to work, to be able to earn a living, to be able to have a better life. Um, and and you see that so much in our narrative, especially in our political narrative, that we forget that there are human beings who we talk about. There, there are families, there are children who are just wanting, just like you, uh, to, to have a home, to have a roof, of, roof over their head, to have, um, you know, a life of dignity, a life of uh, not living. Um, I mean, I still live paycheck to paycheck, so that's a reality. But I think that it, people just want to be able to have a, a life just like everybody else. So I think that there's so much intersectionality uh, between like what we do um, as, as a society and how our um, political decisions in the U.S. impact other countries. So I think going back to, to my story, um, like my family was sponsored to come to the US because of US involvement in Afghanistan. Like the wars, the Taliban is a direct result of US involvement um, interference in the 70s with the Russians. Like the Mujahideen became the Taliban and, and the reason why there was so much war is because we as the US made some decisions and um, support it one way or another. Um, that created this conflict. So I think that not taking responsibility for that, and I, I say that as, a, as an American, that we have so much power as a country, as a nation, as a people, that it also is our responsibility to empathize and to understand complex um, issues and uh, be it globally, be it locally. Um, and, you know, like my life journey basically tells that story of how our, um, political system dictates how other people's lives, not in the US and within the US are impacted. Um, so I became the first person in my family to graduate college, but I graduated with $50,000 in student loan debt. So despite the fact that I make uh, a, um, uh, I have a consistent income, like 40% of my paycheck goes to my student loans and then allows, I'm only able to, uh, pay my rent and then I have to live off credit card, which is the cycle of debt that I'm stuck. And I'm not alone. There's so many people um, who are just lower income. They're not immigrants or first gen or anything like that, but they just, because the price of education is so high in our, in our country that are going through these life experiences that we share despite the fact that we have so many other differences. Uh, you just provided a lot of insight a lot of insight to what is truly going on. And I love that you mentioned this is reality, right? It's it's such a reality for many Americans where you work a minimum paying job and then you go to upgrade yourself and then you incur debt and you try to pay off the debt. And in the midst of paying off debt, you incur more debt because you've got to sustain yourself. And this is, becomes a perpetual cycle, right? And it's so easy for people to say, all right, well, go, go upgrade yourself, go get a better job. Because when I say it's easy for other people to say that, and the people who are saying this are people who come from a very privileged 
fund, right? From a privileged um, background. They don't need to pay for college uh, tuition. They don't need to 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 work as many jobs as as, as someone who is struggling to pay for their that should be right. And when we want to branch it out even deeper, it happens to people of color more often than this, right? Uh, I've seen this. I I went back to university in the United States as well. And I ink it. I have, I've inked quite an amount of of debt tuition loans, mm-hmm. uh, student loans, right? And I never expected to ink that much of of student loans. And it always makes me question that you know why is education so expensive over here when European countries and other countries they pay for their asset, when they say their asset, their people to go to school, get an education, and it's so difficult over here, right? So when we look at a person, uh, when we want to look for equity, and I, I want to go back to racial equity again, right? When we want to look for racial equity, we have to look at, are we putting more gates to prevent someone from growing? So let's say if it's a person of color going to college, right? And uh, how much are they going to be given sponsorships? Are they going to be given um, whatever you call it? I can't even remember the terms anymore. Uh, money, free money to go back to school, right? And you, and when you don't have the sponsorships and free tuition to go back to school, you're going to incur more student debt. And and it also relates to what kind of university that you go to, right? right. It depends on where where do you live, what kind of neighborhood do you live, right. and if you get accepted into universities. Mm-hmm. Right, and if universities are recognised by companies, and and they feel like, oh, you're not from a very fancy mm-hmm. university, so I'm not going to hire you, and that prevents that person from getting a job. So, a lot of the times, going back to the point that we were talking about, a lot of people think racial equity is just about okay, X number of people hired done. Right. Back to you, uh, the, to the point that you made, it's a very superficial font, right? Right, but. I want to start exploring some resolutions. How can we fix this? And I know it's not an overnight thing, but it is a social responsibility of ours to reform this part of society. And when I say part of society, it's workplace, it's at home, it's in our communities. So what are some resolutions we can explore that we can start as a person? Absolutely. I think uh, you're right. Absolutely. That when companies or um, places of work think that because they hired certain people that they have met their equity quota, like we have this number of women and we have this number of people of color, we're good to go. We're equitable. Um, When I think that you have to think, look at the, a, a wholesome picture, right? Um, For somebody like myself who comes from a lower income background, um, has a a story that's so different from somebody who comes from a privileged economic, be it racial, be it gender, be it, um, uh, so all these other privileges that come with that. So my story is I have to pay my student loan debt. I have to live. I have to support my family. And then this other person whose family has the capacity to support them, get an apartment. Um, they don't have any student loan debt. Our life trajectory is so different and how, like 
we us getting the same amount of pay is not equitable because we're equal, but I think that when you look at the wholesome picture, we're not equitable. And I think that with people of color, um, because the education system in the US is set up that it is based on your house prices, right? Like your property value determines what type of education you get. It is just mind blowing to me that we are one of the richest countries in the world and we determine the quality of our education for our children for the future of this country based on whether they can afford to live in a fancy house or not. So I think that when we look at um, racial equity, who are these people who aren't able to um, live in these fancy houses or some of the whitest neighborhoods, some of the whitest zip codes have the highest producers of Ivy League kids or um, have um, the opportunities to be able to be able to be their best selves as children to go into college, which turns um, in turns gives them better opportunities for jobs, better opportunities for internships. I wasn't able to do an internship in college because most internships are unpaid. And as a lower income person, I could not afford to not have an income. So I think that some of the resolution when you think about it, and I think this is why it's so important for us to be uh, concerned about racial justice because so many facets of our, life, uh, of our lives are interconnected. So I think that because of redlining, because of discrimination, because of Jim Crow laws, uh, people of uh, color are, um, because of white supremacy, people of color tend to be in the mar uh, majority of the marginalized group, right? Not by any choice of their own. If anything, I think people of color are resilient to be able to survive for this long and thrive for this long. Um, when we set these, how uh, the education system based on property values and people who don't have um, the capacity to afford better education because their house is not valued as higher, um, then in turns creates other barriers for them. Uh, black women tend to accrue more and student debt tend to accrue higher interest rates. Um, so, another barrier right um, tend to are more likely to default on their on their loans these are like data driven factual statements uh, and then uh, you have these um, uh, data showing that if your name sounds a certain way then you your resume doesn't even make it to the um, to the desk of whoever needs to see it right which doesn't allow you to get the job opportunities equitably like everybody else. And then you don't have, so you have to take the 750 minimum wage job or have to have three jobs to be able to. So there's this cycle that happens. And I think some of the resolutions that I think um, um, uh, that are so necessary for us to be a racially equitable society is to um, have more federal funding for our public education system. Only eight percent of the federal public, uh, uh, only eight percent of the uh, education funding comes from from a federal level. And I think that in order for us to work towards equity, we need to make our education system equitable. We need to pay teachers better. We need to um, make um, history true, make teach true history, not whitewash it, not talk about um, ignore the massacre of of. Uh, the Europeans and talk about Thanksgiving or um, talk about how slavery ended and then racial justice was served when it's not true when we see it so much in our in our day-to-day -day life. Um, I think that um, 
looking through a racial justice lens, Medicare for all, who are the people who are not getting the, the care that they need? Majority of people dying from COVID are black and brown people because they're essential workers, because they're lower income, because they have pre-existing health conditions. So allowing people to be able to get the health care that they need, um, looking at uh, pay disparities in um, um, in, in, with a racial justice lens of how Latinx women make uh, 50 cents to the dollar that the white men makes. When we talk about pay equity, it's still between, oh, uh, white women and white men, when there are other people who are more marginalized with that. So there's so much of our, um, of our daily, like I said, daily, daily lives and things that impact us on a daily basis that need to have a racial justice lens. Uh, black people are less likely to be believed when they're in pain. Uh, there was a survey out that uh, people, uh, doctors, medical students thought that black people don't feel pain as much as other races do. So I think that when we don't consider racial justice in every aspect of our life, that we're not working towards uh, racial justice and equity. Um, so, you know, um, black people, black mothers have a higher maternity, mortal, mortal uh, maternity death rate. Like they hire a die of childbirth at a higher rate than other races. Um, so there's so many um, solutions that are possible. It's not like we're the first country who is exploring, like making our education system, our healthcare system, our economic system more equitable. There are countries who are doing it and doing it very well. We have the resources. And I think that part of the reason why I got into politics is that there's just not enough political will to push for these. And I think that when we have more working class people, more people who bring lived experiences uh, and uh, have awareness of of um, of these dis disparities um, uh, based on race, based on gender, based on sexual orientation abilities, then we can talk about how we can make our country better. And I think that I always think of um, of how what I think the role of government is and like how government performs in the US. The reason why we have a government system set up is because we want to make our country better in terms of economic education. You know, we want to make it equitable for as many people as possible when it's not true that the people who are in power are care more about their personal interests, care more about their friends and how to get rich, care more about cor corporations and time and time again, um, put profits over people. Uh it's so true. I echo you so many times. People do continue to put profit over people. Uh, it, it it becomes. I I feel that it's it, it's always going to be that is going to be the case unless everyone wakes up and says, "Hey, you know, we need to start doing something." Um, but. I wanted to identify a point that you mentioned just now, and I love every point that you made. And I hope people tuning in and listening get to see and and get to see that everything is intersectional and co-related, right? When we talk about diversity at the workplace, it isn't an isolated theme. It isn't an isolated topic, right? Because when someone shows up at work, it's, it, they're not showing up as a robot. <laughs> you know, it's it's part of their life. Right. Workplace 
provides them with a paycheck to sustain themselves, buy a house, pay rent. You know, everything is interrelated somehow. And you mentioned a really, really great point, right, about how when someone is applying for a job and they, their resume doesn't even get through it, mm-hmm. right? And that is one of the p- uh, parts of everything is being automated. And and this is the one method of gatekeeping as well, where they have the job description and they, they not tune in. I'm not saying tune in, I was thinking radio. But they program the AI or the automated system to such a way where it catches whatever that they want and that becomes unconscious bias or it could be consciously they're doing it right to a t so it captures whatever that they want the candidate to have so in terms like this there's no diversity over there and if you think about it some candidates don't even have the computerized version to submit an online application absolutely not every candidate finds a job through a LinkedIn. Not every candidate has a LinkedIn. Right. Right. They could have graduated from a top university but come from uh in a low paying job, mm-hmm. right? Background where the family can't even afford a computer. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the ways that companies need to open up their eyes and think about how diversity is is related to societal mm-hmm. needs to societal impact, how it is related to what is going on in commu- in communities, mm-hmm. what is going on in ways that is effect- is impacted by policies by the government. So those are some of the things that we I wanted to highlight. Right. And before we go, Zainab, what is one tip that you can give to all our viewers and listeners out there where they can take Right, they can have a voice in reforming this whole lens of racial equity. Let it be at the workplace. Let it be in school, uh, even at, at whichever workplace that they are in, or even at a very small level, even in their neighborhood. What is one tip that you can give to reform? I think decenter yourself. I think so often we have people who cannot think or imagine a world that it doesn't involve them or is outside of what their experience is and read and listen to people of color and listen to marginalized groups, um, not to rebut them, but to listen, to actually understand where they're coming from. Because at the end of the day, I think that we're all just trying to get through, right? Um, so I think that read um, there's so many amazing books available. There's so many um, writings and research and racial justice and equity is not something that started recently or didn't start with um, with Trump. It started, it's been, people of color uh, uh, have been working on it for decades, if not centuries. Um, so educate yourself and, and decenter yourself is, is my message. I love that. I love that point that you mentioned about, you know, racial equity is not something that we have been working on recently. And it is going on for decades. And coming from a global perspective, it's a global issue. It is a global issue. It's going on not just in the United States, but in every other country, uh, even in a, in, a, in a very monolingual country, right? Even in, in for example, in India or mm-hmm. even in Indonesia, because there's colorism to combat. Right. There's classism to combat. Right. Right. So 
thank you again for coming on Hotship Zainab and sharing your wisdom and your passion. It's been such a pleasure to have you. Where can listeners and audience find you? Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I think that these are such important topics and I think the more we talk about it, the more the broader the message gets, the more people get involved and I'm so incredibly grateful to be a part of it. Um I'm on Twitter at Zainab Mosini. Um I my uh, campaign website is still active zainabmosini.com just to get a gauge of some of the the policy points that uh, I believe in, in in my heart um that were also my campaign um um uh, on my campaign platform. Um, I'm on Facebook at Zainab Mousini. Um, so please uh, send me questions. Please hold me accountable to anything that I say that you agree or disagree with. Um, I think that um, when we have dialogue and when we open our, our minds, like I said, when we have the ability to, to decenter ourselves, I think um, in, when we listen to different perspectives, we only become better. Um, so I, I truly believe that. So please reach out. Thank you again. It's been so beautiful to have you on Hardship, the now workplace diversity leadership and is. And remember, folks, leap from the heart because we are all dealing with people that should be at the workplace in our homes, in our society. Every person has a story. Every person has a beating heart. Empathy, love, and kindness always. Sign up, don't go anywhere. Everyone else, tune in again next week. I'll be back. Thank you for watching and listening.